Stay hungry, stay foolish. This show is brought to you with thanks to Microsoft for Startups. Being awarded a leadership role within an organization may feel like an amazing accomplishment, but that is only half the battle. The second and arguably most important half lies in building and maintaining a highly effective team. However, according to a recent survey conducted on UK workers, managers are failing miserably at this task and are instead fostering feelings of hate and resentment among their workers. The survey states that while 22% of the public say they hate their boss, a staggering 52% identify their boss as the main source of job dissatisfaction. So where is it that managers are going wrong and what can they do to improve their employees' perception of them? Compelling research from the 1970s found that managerial failure had little to do with IQ or personal attractiveness, rather it was linked directly to interpersonal competence. And since personality is at the core of interpersonal competence, our guest developed the Globe's leading personality assessment to identify the 11 personality scales that cause leaders to fail time and time again. We welcome creator of the Hogan Assessments, Dr. Robert Hogan. Welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to have you on the show. I'm going to I was talking to one of your colleagues, Blake, earlier on, and he asked me to ask you this at the top of the show and get you to answer it at the end of the show. So we're going to plant this now. So how many psychologists it takes to screw in a light bulb? We're going to ask that now. We'll leave it hanging. and we'll come back and get you to give us the answer at the end of the show, Robert. But I thought the best way to start the show today is that this work, your work, is so important in this current work environment, this time of crisis, because it helps leaders by providing insights about their counterproductive tendencies or risk factors. These characteristics become heightened during times of stress and result in poor leadership and relationships with employees and other key stakeholders. But let's hold on to that thought for the moment, and we'll come back to it, because I think it's worth sharing the origins of your work, because after leaving the Navy, you worked with youthful offenders and your interest in psychology derives from these times and you became enchanted by the task of understanding how these young people, many of whom were really smart and good at sports, had arrived at this point of delinquency. Yes, I worked for two years as a probation officer in East Los Angeles dealing with delinquent kids and I discovered that there was no help. That is to say, I was flying blind. I was just operating on intuition. I would ask my senior managers about the dynamics of the process and they had nothing to say. So I began haunting libraries at night and my lunch hour to see what the academics had to say about the origins of delinquency. It was completely unhelpful. The sociologists said delinquents are kids who hang out with delinquents. And so delinquency is caused by hanging out by delinquents. I decided I would go to graduate school and solve the problem of crime. But I couldn't get anybody to pay attention. Along the way, I became really interested in the problem of leadership. I worked my way through college, and when I was commissioned as an officer, I'd already had a couple years of experience getting working-class boys to do dirty jobs. That's what the Navy is all about. So I took over. All my brother officers on the ship were from very privileged backgrounds, Ivy League schools, and fathers were very successful. From their point of view, working-class kids were put on earth to serve them. For me, they were part of my peer group. I was a gunnery officer, and for the first the entire first year on the ship, we were unable to fire guns. 
And I thought, what happens if the Russians come? <laughs> we're going to be in big trouble here. So I was put in charge of the guns, and I fixed them. I fixed them really well. We won fleet-wide gunnery excellence awards. So on the one hand, I took a failed operation and turned it into an absolute paragon of performance. On the other hand, my brother officers gave me nonstop shit because they said I didn't understand leadership. I kept thinking, if I'm the guy that doesn't understand leadership, why is it that my part of the ship is working and your part of the ship is not? So off I went to graduate school to study delinquency, but I had this secret interest in leadership. And what I discovered in graduate school was that the prevailing opinion among academics was, this would be the 1965, that there's no such thing as leadership. The leadership's a function of the situation. I, I always call this the shit happens theory of leadership. If you're in charge and things go well, you got lucky. If you're in charge and things go badly, you were unlucky. But leadership had nothing to do with the outcome of the group. But that's just nonsense. My first job was at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. And just as I was moving to Baltimore, there's a legendary football coach named Vince Lombardi. He'd been the coach of the Green Bay Packers. He had taken the Packers and turned them from a doormat into an almost unbeatable program. And he quit because he said the expectations for success in Green Bay were just impossible. And he moved to Washington, D.C. to become the head coach of the Washington Redskins. The Redskins have been doormats for 20 years. And I said to everybody who would listen, I said, if there's such a thing as leadership, then Lombardi will fix the Redskins. But if the academics are right that it's all a function of situation, then he'll fail because the situation in Washington will be entirely different than the situation in Green Bay. So he goes to the Redskins, and in his first year, he takes them to the playoffs. It wasn't until about 2000 that I had time in my life to actually drill down on the subject of leadership. And when I did, I discovered what you always do, which is if ask an important question and academic psychologists have nothing to say about it. In 2000, there was still no consensus, as of today, it's still the case, there was no consensus at all among academics regarding characteristics of effective leadership. I thought, well, if there's no consensus about the good ones, what about the bad ones? This is a page out of Freud's handbook and Piaget's handbook. They didn't study success. They studied failures. Freud called it the parapraxis of everyday life. I said, if there's no consensus about good leadership, what about bad leadership? First question is, how much is there? So I did a bunch of data snooping and fiddling around, and I concluded that the base rate for failure in public and private sector organizations for management failure is about 65 to 75%. And that's a pretty good number. That is, six or seven out of every 10 managers is driving their staff crazy. The next question is, why is that number so high? And the answer is, that has to do with how they get put on the job. I should also say, academics define leadership in terms of who's in charge. But, says moi, who gets to be in charge of a large, hierarchical, bureaucratic, male-dominated organization? The answer is a politician who may or may not have talent for leadership. So academics define leadership in terms of who's in charge. That's a mistake. Proper way to define leadership is in terms of the ability to build and maintain a high-performing team. Leadership is all about building a team. It's not about getting to the number one job. Those are very different processes, and it turns out the psychology of getting to the top is very different from the psychology of being an effective leader. I'd love to hone in on what you said there about the Packers, because I also pulled a quote, but this time by John Wooden. And the reason I did is because I thought it was useful to get your definition of personality, because I know you've deeply studied Freud, Piaget, etc. The definition of personality is quite subjective, and I'm a reader of John Wooden's work, and he said, be more concerned with your character than your reputation because your character is what you really are, while your reputation is merely what others think you are. 
And you point out our external personality or reputation is unbelievably important because it's based on that, how we're hired, fired, promoted, people lend us money, vote for us, and so on. So personality from the outside becomes ultra important. Yes, your reputation is what we can expect out of you. The question is, why do you have that kind of reputation? And Wooden is correct. Characteristic of a leader is integrity. They have to have integrity, and the troops, the staff, the team picks up on that almost immediately. The most powerful single predictor of leadership performance is the degree to which the, the team or the staff trusts you. And the trust comes entirely from integrity. I thought that difference between personality based on how we think of it versus how others think of it is really important because you talk about Freud here and you say that there's the you that we know and the you that you know, and then there's the you we fabricate because we all fabricate a version of our own personality based on the stories we tell. Exactly. I make a distinction between identity and reputation. Identity is the you that you know. Reputation is the you that we know. And Freud's line is, the you that you know is hardly worth knowing because you just made it up. And this becomes really important because it all depends on how others see us, including building those teams. Well, it's more than that. I mean, uh, other people own your own your, your personality. I mean, that's the basis on which everything happens is how other people see you. So you have to be very careful about you know maintaining your reputation. What you say about yourself is only modestly related to how you perform. What other people say about you is a really powerful predictor of how you perform. Even if you're a startup or a founder of an organization, what people say about you when you leave the room becomes really important. I'd love to come back to something you said about Freud. I watched one of your talks and loved how you drew on two areas of your expertise, one being that time in the Navy, and the other is your deep understanding of psychology. And you said, Freud is to psychology what Ptolemy was to navigation. Ptolemy was wrong. The Earth is not the center of the universe. But if you want to sail a boat from the east coast of Scotland to South America, you'll use Ptolemaic astronomy. And it's the same thing. Freud is wrong, but if you want to navigate everyday life, you better pay very close attention to some of the fundamental insights of psychoanalysis. And what are those, Robert? I'd love to hear what the things we should really hone in on from your experience are from Freud's work. Three or four things. First is the unconscious drive everyday behavior. Mostly we don't know what we're doing, when we're doing it, or why we're doing it. I would say 90% of what we do, we do for unconscious reasons. That's a direct Freudian insight. That's what Tversky and Kahneman get this Nobel Prize for behavioral economics. That's all they were talking about was unconscious biases in reasoning processes. So people are finally today catching on to the original Freudian insight that mostly what we do, we do for irrational and unconscious reasons. Second, really powerful Freudian insight, I think, is development matters, particularly zero to 10 Development matters. The things that happen when you're little shape your career for the rest of your life in ways that you don't understand. The third thing is that Freud was a big fan of Darwin. And I think I mean, we're basically biological. The deadliest invasive species in the history of the earth. We are biological creatures and products of our evolution. So if you want to understand people in the full range, of, you need to understand our evolutionary history. And then that takes us the last thing about Freud that I really like is his writings on leadership. Freud was the first and one of the few people that actually have a full-blown, fully articulated theory of leadership. It's in his book called Totem and Taboo, which many people think is horrible, but which he always thought was his most important work. His argument is that it's just like life in a chimpanzee troop, that what goes on inside organizations is a struggle for power and control. And if you're in charge, they will be coming after you, and it's just a matter of time until they get you. Politics is the one profession in which every career ends in failure. Freud would have said that. 
it's really fascinating for this period of stress and downturn that we're coming into or we're already in because as you talk about in your assessments this is when the true self shows up and i mentioned at the top of the show that in order to lead a team more successfully leaders need to be aware of 11 personality scales or derailers that you call them and you detect for all of these in your tests i'd love if you'd give a top line of each of them robert and how they impact us in the workforce and at the end i'd love to come back to the ones i told you i took the assessments and some of them showed up that are very common to change makers within organizations or innovators within organizations. And I'd love to hone in on those. I'd love if you'd start with Excitable. There was a really smart guy at Sears in the 70s named John Bentz, a friend of mine. And he hired all his new executives, all new managers at Sears using an assessment center and an IQ test. Every new manager was smart and had a glittering bright side. They looked good in an interview. And two thirds of them failed. And he found that they failed for 11 reasons. And when I read his 11 reasons, I said, my God, that sounds just like the dsm 4 axis two personality disorders. I mean, exactly like them. And so that's where this comes from. So there's real consensus regarding a taxonomy for managerial failure. Managers fail for these 11 recurring reasons. I don't think these tendencies show up when people are stressed or drunk or so. They just show up when people let down their guard. And typically when they let down their guard is when a manager is dealing with a subordinate. These tendencies never show up when a manager is dealing with his or her boss. They only show up when they're dealing with their subordinates because that's when they think they can get away with it. Another fundamental principle of personality psychology is that there's good news and bad news at the high end and low end of every dimension. So the first dimension is called excitable. And people with high scores on excitable bring a lot of passion, enthusiasm, and drive to the task. They have a real sense of urgency and and energy. But the problem is that they can get frustrated. And then when they get frustrated, they blow up and walk off and quit. So they'll have a life history of failed relationships where I'll never speak to you again. So it's boom. Again, they bring a lot of dynamism and energy to work and enthusiasm and push, but they can become frustrated and quit and stomp off. You see a lot of it in sales. People at low scores on Excitable take all the energy out of the room. It's like being in a bingo game in a senior citizen's home. So you want some energy on this or, or else nothing's going to happen. The next of the 11 traits then is skeptical, Robert. My word for paranoia. People with high scores on skeptical are very astute about politics. That's a reality of organizational life is there are people who are plotting against you. So if you want to know who's out to get you, go find a person with a high score on skeptical and they will know who's out to get you. Henry Kissinger would be a poster boy for a high score on skeptical. The problem is that they take things way too personally. Something goes wrong, they think it's a personal insult when it's not. And then when they think they've been wrong, they'll sue you, they'll hit you, they'll counterattack in various ways. So the strength is the political awareness and astuteness. The shortcoming is taking things too personally and, and overreacting. But people with low scores on skeptical are like deer in the headlights. They just don't have a clue. They don't see what's coming at them and they get run over. The next one, it's like a pandemic within organizations at the moment because of the way they run with quarterly earnings, where leaders are so afraid of making a mistake. And this one is cautious. Oh, yeah. These are the people. Their great strength is they don't make any stupid mistakes. The bad news is they won't take any chances. So you have to take a chance in order to make a mistake. Very, very good at not doing dumb things. Very good at staying out of trouble. But there's no possibility of innovation or creativity with these people in charge. And then the problem at the low end is you get crazy guys like Elon Musk, wild free swingers who pay no attention to 
errors. Next, the leader that locks themselves away and doesn't come out to communicate, even in times of crisis within the organization. And this is what you call reserved leaders. Yeah, the poster boy for this would have been Barack Obama. The strength of these people is they are really tough. They can really take it. They can take heat. They can take criticism. They can take brick bats. They're just tough. The bad news is they don't communicate. Obama talked to about four people. He didn't know the names of his own cabinet secretaries. He had four people he talked to. He sat in his office with the door shut and read memos all day. So the result of this is that there's no communication and people need to hear from you. The problem with low scores is they're too tenderhearted, too easily wounded. I mean, to be in charge, you have to have a tough hide because the criticism are inevitable, but too much is too much. This leads nicely to leisurely leaders because <laughs> I, th- I, I thought this one was really interesting going back to sport because you have this idea of fair weather fans, those fans that show up when you're winning. And this reminded me a lot of leisurely leaders. Yeah. The slogan for these folks is always say yes, never say when. <laughs> Isn't that great? So they yeah, oh, we can do that for you. Oh, absolutely. You bet. So they always tell you what you want to hear, but they're created procrastinating. It comes from the British Army in World War One, where there was a lot of really bad leadership, as there still is. And this came from Army psychiatry, psychiatric studies in, in World War One. It's a way of dealing with intolerable authority. You smile and pretend to agree. It's a way of being aggressive and not get caught. So you smile, you agree, and then you say, I'll get to it when I feel like it. So it's overtly a lot of charm and then privately a real resentment and hostility. The next one is a real bugbear for people who work in innovation because a lot of innovation workers have to hand over the credit for the work to the organization. When they're successful, the organization or perhaps the leader takes charge or takes control of those wins. But if it's a failure, it's your fault. So it's that idea of the window in the mirror. And these are what you call bold leaders. That's my word for narcissism. And this is the problem in failed leadership. This is the big topic in my view these days. So with the shareholder revolution in the early 70s, the guys like Carl Icahn and T. Boone Pickens, they're investing in these companies. In the 50s and 60s, the average CEO earned maybe four or five times as much as the average employee, whereas today they earn several hundred times as much. So what happened with these activist investors, they said, I'm not getting the proper return on my money in your organization. I need better results. So this led to get better results out of CEOs. You would tie their compensation to the stock price. And so companies then began looking for CEOs or candidates for leadership positions who would promise to deliver financial results, as in, I can take this company to the next level. I can make America great again. I can company <laughs> moving. I can give you the financial results that you deserve. And who says things like that? Narcissists. And the data are really clear on this. Narcissists get a much greater variance in firm financial performance. They give you higher highs, but they give you much lower lows. And on form, they destroy companies. But they win the political battle because they promise the financial results that you so richly deserve. There's an epidemic of narcissists at the top of organizations. The very best performing CEOs, the very best performing leaders are actually quite humble. There's a really, really important piece of research that no one knows about. The guy named Fred Luthens did this study back in the 70s in Nebraska. He studied several hundred managers in six different companies. He studied them for four years. He had really detailed data on these guys. At the end of four years, he said, okay, let's see what predicts winning. 
He said, well, it turns out there are two groups of winners. There was a group of people who who got rapid raises. These are the folks that are typically called high potentials. So these are folks with lots of raises and lots of rapid promotions and high profile assignments. And there was a second group whose teams were performing really well. Now, what's the definition of leadership? It's the ability to run a high performing team, right? So you got two groups of successful people, a group of people who are getting lots of raises and promotions and a group of people whose business units are performing at a very high level. Those were not the same people. There was almost no overlap between those two groups. I call the first group emergent. I call the second group effective. They had all this behavioral data and said, how are they spending their time? Well, the emergent group, the people who were through rapid promotions and pay raises, spent their time doing politics. And the group whose business units were performing at a high level spent their time working on their teams. If you're a business owner, who do you want running things? You want a guy who's going to spend his time on the phone and going to meetings? You want a guy who's going to build a team? That one is torturous because you see those people in organizations raised to the top. And it reminded me of a quote by Ken Blanchard. He said, if you don't blow your own trumpet, others will use it as a spittoon. Yes. And it came, it came to mind when I read about these bold leaders because they take credit for major wins. They're bad at recognizing and rewarding the hard work of others. They don't even recognize that it was their team. But the worst thing is the board or whoever they're reporting to don't see it. You see this in sport where you have players who don't do the hard work and hang out and wait for the ball and do all the ball carrying and all the flamboyant work. But a good coach will spot that yeah. and not pick those players yeah. because they're not good for the team. Yes. And there was a quote I pulled from you, and I read about your work in a brilliant book. We had a guest on the show a few weeks ago, Craig LeMasters, and he quoted you in his book, and he said, organizations often overlook humble employees for leadership positions in favor of those who are charismatic. Charismatic people are charming and inspirational, but many turn out to be narcissistic, arrogant, and potentially exploitative. In contrast, humble leaders empower followers and promote team learning. That's your quote, and that is the huge shift needed in organizations today. Yes, exactly, exactly. This is the main push in our businesses these days. The other guy who gets gets this right is Collins in his book, Good to Great. He has these uh, 11 companies that had 15 years of performance significantly below the standards for the industry, and then 15 years of sustained performance substantially above the standards for the industry. And he said the, the key to the success of those 11 organizations was the CEO, and all those CEOs were the same kind of guy. They were all quite humble. When you went in the room, you couldn't tell who the CEO was. They're quite humble, but they were fiercely competitive. And that's what you want in an effective leader is humility combined with fierce desire to win. One of the things I found underlying a lot of these traits were fear, because maybe you need to feel you need to be bold, even though if you're humble, because you feel actually I won't get credit here and I'll be ousted by the organization. I'm sure that's happened. Oh, yeah. Many people listen oh, yeah. to the show. Oh, yeah. Many. I, I think it's the existential dilemma in careers and in organizations. I mean, you, you do a good job, but you have to have an advocate. You have to find somebody, someone who will toot your horn for you because folks figure out right away who's just blowing their own horn. It's a really hard problem. I see this all the time, and I get people ask me about this, and I, I'm kind of going, I, it really depends on who that person is who's got your back because you need, to go back to your naval roots, you need, you yes. need aerial cover. You yes. need somebody up there watching yeah. out for you, covering you, and but you need, as you said, trust at the heart of it because sometimes, you know, you know, it's like one of those movies where 
you think it's it's a twist in the movie. You think the person who's got your yeah. back, you get to them, and then yeah, they turn around exactly. and shoot you in the back or something like that. That happens to people too, where they're kind of going, crap, I thought that person had my back, and all they were doing was taking all the credit. It doesn't happen to guys with high scores on Skeptical. And the balance comes through and all these. The balance is needed, going back to the idea of duality in life. But yeah. we'll, we'll move on because we, we won't get through them all, but Mischievous is the next one. I scored highly on Mischievous myself. Well, high scores on Mischievous are really quite charming, and they're very, they're very pleasant. They have, you don't have to say that, Robert, because I scored. Well, I did. It's how they're characterized. Other people see them as charming and pleasant and, well, charming, period. The problem is well, it can be quite manipulative and commitments and, and promises, and, and they betray people. But some elevation on that's going to be essential because it's all about social yeah. skill. I, I spoke too early on that one about being flattered. <laughs> There's something like uh, I tend, it's it, the, the ordinary language term for it is psychopath, and the the, the estimate is that about ten percent of all CEOs, or so I think probably fifty percent of all politicians, are, are have high scores on this. You just just it's essential for a big time career to have social skill and, and charm. Coming back to something you said earlier on, narcissism, again, the quote I heard was there's about 1% of the population are psychopaths, 0.5 of them are in prison, the other 0.5 lead organizations. But there's a, there's a huge percentage of people who are narcissists as well who lead organizations. Oh, absolutely. The corporate psychopath is a real phenomenon. Let's move on to colorful then, Robert. Colorful is a psychological language is called the histrionic personality. These are people who love to be the center of attention, who come into a room and take over, who know how to command a crowd and really get agitated when no one's paying attention. So it's pretty much essential for a career in sales or politics to be high colorful. The good news is they absolutely light up a room. They are the life of the party. They're a lot of fun to be around. The bad news is that uh, they're really distractible and and uh, they, they have trouble staying on task and delivering on promise. They're just following the, following the spotlight and not uh, getting things accomplished. These are the people who are full of ideas, and this links closely then to the next one, which is imaginative. Actually, I should say, uh, colorful is the, is the scale with the highest correlation with IQ. Colorful scores correlate about 0.3 with IQ, so they're all quite smart people. It's smart not by the traditional sense of things, which links it closely to imaginative, which is next. And again, I'm sure a lot of the people who listen to this show innovators or change makers score high on imaginative, but there's a downside to imaginative as well. Well, yeah, high scores on imaginative are essential for entrepreneurship and creativity. And that's where it comes from. Imaginative is, our, is a proxy for being able to think strategically. There's a really important difference between tactical and strategic thinking. And, and, and they're very different people. Tactical people can't be strategic. And strategic people have a hell of a time being tactical. So you need both on the team. The biggest single correlate with imaginative is strategic. So it's a very powerful, but it's a powerful predictor of, of strategic thinking, but it also associated with kind of eccentricity. And, and the, my sister is the poster girl for high scores on imaginative. My favorite quote from her was, this is a typical thing. She said, she looked at me one day and said, you know, she said, sometimes I can feel my molecules change. <laughs> there you go. And that's what, I mean, you get that, that's the sort of stuff you get out of them. I, I think probably a little bit of that when Trump said, you know, you ought to think about drinking bleach to cure the coronavirus. <laughs> also overlapping with bold there. One thing I wanted to draw on there, you, you mentioned it, so you sparked the thought for me, was the importance of diversity. You can't be all these people. You can't score no. the perfect score on no. all these people. So diversity in your team becomes really important. And I think it's yeah. worth notice, noting in the light of all the crises we're seeing beyond the COVID-19 pandemic, but in the States in particular, 
with race and bias, etc. You were one of the leaders in this. You and your sister Trish went out to identify and try and influence more diversity within the police force back in the 70s. There are two things about personality. First, personality predicts occupational performance significantly better than IQ. And second is it doesn't discriminate. IQ always discriminates. Minorities get lower scores on IQ measures, but personality is perfectly color and gender blind. Men get the same scores as women. Minorities get the same scores as majorities. And older workers get better scores than younger workers because they're more mature. So. Personality is the way to make decisions about people. It's not gender or it's not race. It's neurodiversity is key. And this shows that why that's so important. Well, we'll move on because the flip side, I suppose, of imaginative or the side that you would hire for if you're this imaginative CEO who comes up with great ideas but doesn't really like the execution of those is diligent. Uh, yeah, diligent is my word for obsessive compulsive. People with high scores on diligent have a really high standards, intense work ethic, really concerned about doing a good job, following through, paying attention to details and getting things done right in the first time, every time. Uh, and I think you get a lot of that in, in, good, in high level coaches like Bill Belichick is going to be 100% on diligent. The problem is, of course, is they don't know how to delegate and they micromanage. They, they disempower their staff. So you get a lot of high quality and a lot of attention to detail, but you also get disempowerment of coordinates. Closely aligned to that one then is the dutiful leader, which is so common in organizations where, you know, you worked in the Navy, you know that the organizational structure, the hierarchy within organizations came from the military and came from the Catholic church or religion. And unfortunately, those dutiful leaders are the ones who often both can play politics, but also play by the rules and get themselves to the top of organizations. The poster boy for this in modern American life would be Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State. He graduated first in his class at the military academy. He'll do anything his bosses tell him to do. And you notice he never, ever, ever gets out of line with Trump, despite the fact that he's probably twice as smart as Trump. If you want to have a successful career in a hierarchical organization, you need to have a high score on dutiful. Entrepreneurs and innovators have low scores on dutiful. This is the Freudian superego. This is right back to Freud. People with high scores on dutiful are people who, who really respect authority and, and will do anything authority says. So they're useful people to have in organizations, but won't bring you any innovation or progress. It's interesting you say that. We had Alex Osterwalder on the show a couple of weeks back, and Alex talked about this, that, for example, if you're imaginative, one of the things that comes up there is you will come up with loads of ideas many of them won't go anywhere many of them will fail right. and and the dutiful leader or the diligent worker will listen for the ones that don't work and refer to those and go oh but that's like your other idea yes exactly. <laughs> yes. yes that's exactly but they what they do but yep. they won't listen for the gold and and nope. this is the world we live in this world of vuca of ultimate change of incessant change requires such a collaboration of all these different mindsets within an organization the other thing he said was you can't just have an imaginative leader. You need almost two. You need a dual leadership, yep, the yep. dutiful leader that, that's dependable and works on the business as it is today, and then the imaginative leader who imagines a new tomorrow. And it's interesting because Jeff Bezos said in an interview recently that he has delegated all his duties of the present to his team, yeah. and he focuses almost exclusively three years out in the future and works his way yep. back from there. 
That's very smart. I, I see it as the distinction between the CEO and the COO. The CEO is supposed to be outside in the world running around doing things and the COO, the CEOs need to be uh, imaginative and the COOs need to be dutiful. And by the way, there's tension. I mean, they, they, those, are not, those are not people who naturally get along with each other. It's, it's incumbent on the CEO to understand that he or she needs a high dutiful person to, to follow up and make things happen. Yeah, I love that. I love that idea of tension. And another guest we had on was Ian McGilchrist. He's an expert on the brain. And he talked about the tension between left and right brain, you know, so the more organized side and the more imaginative side. But he said, without that tension, there's no force to propel things. And he said, think of it like the bow of a bow and arrow. If it's not taught, it can't propel an arrow forward. And I love that analogy for successful organizations it's that mix of tension of the, the present yeah. and the future working together but what i really loved about the assessments and i love your opinion on this is you detect for three versions of self the me that emerges when i put my best foot forward in an interview then there's the me that emerges when i let my guard down like you say when nobody's looking or I close the door we call that the dark side the dark side and then the purpose me itself the me that drives me so it gets me out of bed in the morning and we call that the inside. <laughs> yeah, so you, you do really reflect everything. And, and what I said to you off air before we started was, I love where you came from here, your work in the Navy to see successful units, unsuccessful units, to turn them around. Then your work in criminology to help those adolescents that were on the right path in some way, lost their way. And then your drive to make the world a better place because i think that's why this is so important because we need to listen to the inner voice because you were saying there about that dutiful mike pompeo type that i i personally can't live like that where i'd have this sick feeling if i felt i was playing the game to get ahead and just keep my job i i can't live like that and i'm not saying there's anything wrong with somebody that can but i just would love to see a world that didn't feel i had to wear a mask <laughs> good luck with that <laughs> yeah, so I, I just I, I assume we're at the end here my summary metaphor for this this stuff is that people in organizations everyone's concerned with who's in who's out who's up who's down who's the future who's the next one going to be they're all concerned about the competition inside the group within the group that's what everyone's focused on that who's you know who's going to be the next president of the u.s but that but so there's there's competition within the group for status and control but there's competition between groups for survival. And if you lose the battle for survival, it doesn't matter who's in charge, who's up and who's down. So there's competition within the group for, for status. There's competition between groups for survival. You lose the battle for survival, you're done. People confuse leadership with status within the group. No, leadership is what keeps you going vis-a-vis -vis the Russians, the Chinese, or whoever else your potential threats are. And I think yeah. it's a really important distinction that most people don't make or maintain. I love competition that. Competition within the group for status, competition between the groups for survival. And survival is much more important. Yeah, and it's so important in this world of absolute flux in every way. You know, we've technology, we've yep. pandemics, we've trade wars. There's so much going on that we can't afford for infighting within organizations. I asked at the top of the show, and I, I planted that seed that Blake gave me about how many psychologists it takes to screw in a light bulb. I'd love you to give us the answer. So every talk I give, people say, well, can personality change? And the answer is, it's the old joke. How many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is one, but the bulb has to really want to change. 
And so how much do people change? Well, not much. I mean, the only way they can change is they have to really, really want to change. And mostly they don't. People are pretty happy with themselves. Robert, before I finish up, where can people find out more about you, your work, etc.? www.hoganassessments.com And I'd like to thank our sponsor of the show, Microsoft for Startups, creator of the Hogan Assessments, Dr. Robert Hogan. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for the invitation.